This Knowledge at Wharton podcast was produced in conjunction with EY's Global Private Equity Center. For more information, please visit ey.com slash private equity. Welcome back to Steve Samet, a senior fellow and lecturer here at Wharton, and Michael Rogers, who's EY's Global Deputy Private Equity Leader. Today, we're, we'll look at some key issues in private equity, including the outlook for IPOs this year, fundraising, and merger and acquisition activity. So let's start by noting something that came out of a recent EY study that studies part of an ongoing series uh, titled, How Do Private Equity Investors Create Value? The study this time uh, took a close look at all or most of the PE exits in 2013, and they based that on analysis of public filings and interviews and performance data on some 440 exits uh, or sales of companies owned by PE firms to strategic investors through IPOs, secondary buyouts, or or bankruptcy. Um, So more and more Revenue growth is being created organically in portfolio companies as opposed to purely by financial engineering as it was done in the past. So, Mike, perhaps you can start us off uh, talking about that trend and how widespread and uh, significant it may be. Okay. Thanks, Steve, and uh, nice to be with you all today again. I'd say, you know, it's interesting that cost-cutting clearly remains an important part of the PE playbook, but uh, over the last several years, it's taken a backseat to organic revenue growth and, and transformational changes to the business. And, and that's including things like you think about geographic expansion, new product lines. And as you mentioned in, in our recent study, uh, we conduct a, an attribution analysis of the sources of EBITDA growth in PE-backed companies. And what we found was that the majority of the growth comes from initiatives designed to spur organic growth. And over our entire study period, that's 06 to 13, organic revenue growth has actually accounted for 46% of total EBITDA growth. And it's been particularly important in the post-recession years. So M&A activity accounted, just just to fill the gap, accounted for about 24% of the growth, and cost reduction was about 25%. But it's interesting that that's falling quite a bit, because when we first started doing the study, it was about 40% in the boom years. Most of it was uh, circled around cost uh, savings, as you touched on. But post-recession, it's down to about 16%. So we're clearly seeing a, a big change. And when we look specifically at the types of initiatives that a lot of the firms are, are using to drive organic growth, it's, it is things like geographic expansion. Uh, you know, that's been the, the, the biggest driver in recent years, but it's new product lines. Adds in, that adds maybe 15% of organic revenue growth. Uh, and, and they've continued to, to build out that, that side of the, the component. And things like price increases, better sales process, um, and, and operating efficiency are, are adding to all that. And, and I think it's really you're seeing a change in the marketplace where PE really recognizes that in many cases a lot of these companies have been owned by either good corporate management or by PEs that have squeezed a lot of cost out. So really, the new frontier is revenue growth, and that was sort of borne out in the study's results. Uh, those are very important observations as to what's going on in private equity, and it's it's nice to have hard data uh, that supports that. Uh, sometimes we're merely speculating. Uh, I think a very important point is, though, that many of the companies that were bought, purchased by PE firms either just before 
the market correction uh, in 2007, 2008, and shortly thereafter, uh, probably were acquired having had significant cost reduction already done, especially if they were in the hands of PE firms that had then flipped them over to another PE firm. Moreover, uh, it became clear to management uh, of these companies before they were acquired by PE firms that they had to change the way they were doing things as well. So uh, uh, using the expression from the world according to GARP, these companies were pre-disastered in a way, and uh, that really put the emphasis on organic growth uh, as the next step to achieving alpha or, or returns. So uh, I think it fits, it, as a narrative, it fits together. It, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and the EY study you know, bears this out. Would you discuss uh, what other areas have added to the generally brighter picture for PE? Because I think that is something that, that we've seen, that uh, PE is on a bit of a, a, a firmer stand than, than it was right after the fallout. Um, and... Uh, there was talk of the wall of debt that the, that was going to have to be paid back and, and that sort of thing. And a lot of that has been taken down now. Uh, and things look much more stable. Uh, in fact, the idea that they're focusing on growth rather than cutting costs suggests that, you know, well, as you say, they've had to, but also that um, that uh, they're, they're looking into expansion rather than, than contraction. Um, so could each of you take a, a turn at talking about the market in general and how it has become more stable uh, in the last year or two in particular? Uh, I'll take a stab at that. Uh, I think the, the, macro, the macro factors look, look better. Um, uh, as, we, as we discussed on our last podcast, uh, there had been um, an increase and in a shifting of capital flowing into the developed country uh, uh, buyout funds or PE firms. Uh, and uh, although there wasn't a drastic reduction from emerging markets, there definitely was a shift. And that probably was a forecast of, of better things uh, to come. But I think if you speak with many of the PE fund managers, you will find that many of them still see this as a very challenging uh, fundraising environment. Uh, And uh, capital still tends to flow on a preferential basis uh, to the larger branded funds. And uh, I don't know if EY's current data is bearing that out, but that's certainly anecdotally what what I've learned uh, in in speaking with PE fund managers. Moreover, and I guess we'll discuss more of this later, the the apparent liquidity that the IPO IPOs of 2012 and 13 created are not necessarily, in fact, liquidity. Uh, so I'm not sure that the funds are out of the woods just yet, uh, as they manage. Uh, uh, the uh, their their public positions in these companies and how to best harvest uh, liquidity. Could you just drill down into that liquidity issue a little bit? They appear to be more liquid, but perhaps not as liquid as they appear. Well, th- this is a phenomenon that that uh, confronts venture capital funds as well, and that is uh, when you have an IPO. Uh, the good news is you're getting the confidence of a public market to infuse more capital. 
but in most instances, neither the private equity funds nor the venture capital funds uh, can sell their positions in that initial public offering. And even if they can, they have a lockup period. Uh, so in many instances, uh, the um, uh, the portion of the offering that the VCs hold or the PE funds hold is still rel- or the, posi- the per- their positions of privately held stock are still relatively high. Uh, also, the floats uh, are dropping. Uh, the the uh, uh, PE f- uh, the, the when companies go public, possibly because the valuations are so much higher, uh, a smaller percentage of the companies are 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 being listed. Uh, and that puts more and more burden uh, on the on the funds, be they PE or VC funds, to um, uh, uh, rely on secondary offerings. And there, you're at the mercy of the market, uh, which could be good or or it can be uh, dreadful. Yeah, I, I uh, would echo much of what Steve commented on. Just to, to touch his his uh, final point first, uh, we have seen a lot of what we would call successful IPO uh, exit activities by by private equity uh, over the last um, 12 to 18 months. And uh, I think Steve hit it on the head. While a lot of them have uh, issued equity, they've issued a tranche of equity, got got a position made in the marketplace, got people following the stock, and they still are holding, you know, significant uh, pieces of that. Now, interestingly, as as, as Steve pointed out, uh, in a rising market, that actually can be good because most follow-ons that have uh, occurred since then uh, were issued at higher prices as the market has stepped up over the last you know 12 to 24 months. But as Steve also rightly points out, you know, there's inherent risk in that, right? I mean, it, it doesn't always uh, go in your favor. And if we get a little bit of a downdraft, you would have you would see many of these funds still have significant exposure to some of these entities that went public and they're sitting on the uh, you know the stub component of the of the shares if you will even though they're in many cases majority blocks and sometimes so that is a that is a bit of a risk you know from a market environment perspective and just to kind of fill out the rest of your your question I think the we definitely see as Steve touched on sort of this barbelling of uh, fundraising if you're successful have had a good track record and uh, look appealing to the markets. Maybe you have a niche that's, that's very attractive and you've invested successfully. Uh, we see uh, oversubscription, uh, almost as bad as, as, or, or as strong uh, oversubscription as you saw, you know, in the heydays uh, in the mid-2000 uh, period. But I think that um, the challenge now is that for the lower end, uh, oftentimes these folks are struggling. So you definitely get this, you know, you have to be a... A, uh, a small niche player that really has a unique skill and, and a strategy to bear, and you can convince the market of that, or you're very large and you uh, you know are playing a different game. But there's many of those funds in the middle that we've talked about, I think, before on this discussion path that, that uh, are struggling. And so that's clearly there. But I do think you know one of the overall themes, and we'll talk, talk about this a, a bit, is that we were very worried a few years ago about the huge pent-up uh, number of companies that were stuck, if you will, in, in some of the PE portfolios uh, around, the, around the country and around the world. At, at one point, uh, a few years ago, we were looking at maybe a seven-year period it would take to unwind. At the pace we were exiting, it would take about seven years to unwind the U.S. or North American portfolio, and uh, that number was about 13 years. 
in 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 Europe, and so we've seen that come down uh, as a result of the the exit activity that has taken place. There's been strong secondary activity. There's been strong IPO activity, as we've chatted about. And so, what we see in general, I guess, if I had to give an overall view, is we see the industry returning back to a bit of normalcy. In that, you know, the expectations of LPs that they can invest. Uh, that the GPs will take that uh, those proceeds and, uh, and apply them in a fashion that you know earns a reasonable return, and that they can expect their money to be returned to them in the normal you know uh, three to seven year time horizon that they've grown accustomed to. Uh, that has sort of returned back to the market, which we think is healthy. And I, I would kind of classify that all as kind of liquidity, if you will, right? I mean, it doesn't mean liquidity like overnight liquidity. It means like I anticipate getting a normal flow of funds coming back to me as an LP from the investments we make in normal course. And so from that perspective, the industry, I think, is on more solid footing. I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. There's another factor in here as well uh, contributing to liquidity, and that is that the, the major corporations have returned to the table uh, to do acquisitions of their own. Uh, the good news is many cases they acquire from the portfolios of the private equity funds. In other instances, they're competing head-to-head uh, for these acquisitions, and sometimes strategic buyers uh, might be willing to pay more than a private equity fund. Uh, but nevertheless, that puts an energy into the market and, and in- improves liquidity uh, and gets uh, uh, the market conditioned for uh, in addition to this organic growth, um, uh, f- uh, to also uh, growth through acquisitions. How would you describe the current state of buy and build in private equity versus just a few years ago? Yeah, well, I think it, over the last decade or so, I think PE firms really focused their efforts on working with companies to accelerate growth from their core businesses. Really, however, though, in, in 2013, we see marked we saw a marked uh, uptick in exits, which pursued a buy-and-build strategy. And I think over the last five years, such deals, have, I think we accounted that they were looking about 21% of deals in our study. And in 2013, they represented 31% of exits. So, you know, lower valuations, a lack of strategic competitors, and a number of industries where consolidation and fragmentation is ongoing really provided, a you know, an accommodative environment for the roll-ups, and so we saw, you know, a lot more of those. Uh, you know, I think we're likely to see uh, a return to PE firms really focusing on improving their core businesses, and, you know, M&A and roll-ups will clearly be a part of that, but, but with valuations trending higher, uh, the role of, of, you know, build-outs like that has been diminished a bit, and we've really seen that and heard that anecdotal uh, from folks when we did the study, and you know that that seems to be less less of the model these days. Yeah, yeah. In in other words, uh, the strategy of acquiring a core asset and then doing a roll up around it, uh, uh, whether or not it was attractive uh, during the uh, dark period, uh, was nevertheless a a strategy that many funds followed. Uh, and it's a very difficult one uh, for both the management as well as the PE fund itself. For the management teams uh, of the portfolio companies, it means that they're constantly in a process of integrating uh, uh, new businesses and new assets into their existing business. 
uh, and for anyone uh, who has managed uh, uh, an integration process, uh, you know they they know just how distracting that can be from uh, uh, meeting meeting the needs of your customers in a timely uh, fashion. Um, uh, and by the same token, it generally means that the private equity funds are in a constant barrage of having to raise additional leverage uh, or writing ever greater uh, equity checks uh, into the portfolio companies. And that starts to render the, the return picture much more cloudy than it otherwise would have been. Uh, so we do see we do see this tension relaxing, with more of a focus on operations. Uh, now, the way funds execute on improving operations is yet another set of questions. Listeners can access past podcasts plus additional insights into private equity at our private equity website, and the address is kw.wharton.upenn.edu/private-equity. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.